Hey everyone, welcome to the 47th episode of the Liam McCollum Show. All right, so I brought Scott Horton on again. We recorded this interview on April 27th, but I should be releasing this May 2nd. Finals are finally done, so that's great news. I should be doing these more frequently and I should be able to release them quicker. But I brought Scott Horton on this episode to talk about the Doha agreement, the plan to leave Afghanistan by May 1st that Biden delayed, and whether or not he thinks we're actually going to be leaving by September 11th. We also talk about Ukraine and the new potential war on domestic terrorism that Biden might be launching. Remember that I'm on YouTube. I'm releasing most of my episodes as videos now, so check those out or subscribe to me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Remember to like and subscribe. Hope you enjoy the interview. Here's Scott. All right, Scott, thank you for joining us again. Happy to be here. Yeah, so a lot's going on right now. Um, Haven't had you on in a while, just wanted to bring you on. Yesterday, Biden made a speech to Congress, and in a couple days, um, May 1st was was the day that we had to leave, or we originally planned on leaving Afghanistan, and Biden has since repealed that. He says that we're going to pull out of there uh, September 11th now. Um, do you kind of just want to give us an update, tell us what's going on, um, if you think that's, if we're actually going to end up pulling out by September 11th and and what's happening? All right. Well, first of all, the story is, uh, you're right, and this has been completely omitted from the narrative in the media. It's amazing that we had a deal to leave, a signed deal with the Taliban, that we would have our troops out by the 1st of May. And then, but the way they announced it was not Biden is canceling the deal. The way they announced it was Biden has decided that now it's time to end the war and we're going to get our troops out by September. Uh, Okay, hallelujah, except that that means we're breaking the deal with the Taliban. It could lead to major conflict with the Taliban. I think the Taliban, as ruthless as they are, they're smart enough that they're probably going to hedge their bets and wait and see here. It's not altogether clear, really, uh, in a military sense, whether they're really drawing everything down. And I think the Taliban are probably waiting to see the same as you and I are, you and me, we (laughs) are, um, to see, you know, what's going to happen. Are they really going to give up the Bagram Air Base? They're really going to pull out every last Green Beret uh, and and all the air power and close down the Bagram Air Base, just hand it over to the Kabul government, and then that's it. Uh, Hang a for sale sign on the fence out front. It's pretty hard for me to imagine that that's true. Although, you know, in all the media in the last just couple of weeks here they're saying that yes that's what we're doing they're drawing down they're sending in you know the big planes to fly equipment out they're you know essentially going along now at the same time though they've admitted from the very beginning it was in the new york times and i guess the post too that well of course we're keeping green berets or at least other special operations forces delta or seals and we're keeping uh and you know, nobody said specifically how many, but presumably thousands of contractors, as well as the CIA. And now exactly what their mission is, I don't think is clear. I mean, there's really a stark distinction between, well, we're going to have a base in Kyrgyzstan somewhere. They're just betting that they can cut that kind of a deal. Um, What we'll do is we'll get a a base in Kyrgyzstan or something. That way, if any Al-Qaeda guys poke their head up, we'll kill them with a drone or we'll send in a special operations team to get them, something like that, versus an entirely other mission, which has been to create and foist this government in Kabul on the people of the country and get them to accept it, or at least now at this point, dumbing that all the way down, keep it from falling. And that basically it's like this. As long as we have B-1 bombers in the country, and, and drones and special operations guys to spot for them, then the Taliban won't take Kabul, right? It, it doesn't make sense for them to concentrate infantry forces for real, you know, large-scale land battles while American air power is there to drop JDAMs on their heads, right? Instead, they fight essentially as guerrilla forces, infiltration and suicide attacks and, you know, sniper attacks and roadside bombs and guerrilla tactics. Um, you know, they will raid um, an Afghan military base and kill everybody there, but then they would draw. They don't take over the base and wait for a B-1 to come and blow them off the face of the earth, right? They just sack the, their enemy and then they withdraw again in a, in a guerrilla war fashion. So 
as long as American air power and drone, you know, drones and planes remain, then it's it, okay. It's not like a fact. Like it goes without saying that it's definitely true, but it has been the case. And it seems likely that it would continue to be the case that this would be enough to keep the Taliban from sacking the capital city and raising their flag over the thing. Right. So now from the point of view of American politicians, what Biden has said he's doing is he is essentially abandoning the Kabul government. He is no longer going to support them, but he will keep forces in the region just for counterterrorism. Now, to me, keeping the forces in the region at all of any description is really a loophole back into fighting for our friendly forces on the ground there who fight the guys we call the terrorists for us and this kind of thing. And in fact, you know, the Pentagon had said we're going to cease providing air cover for Afghan national security forces. That's no longer our mandate. And then you should have seen the tweet. I don't know if you saw the tweet where Admiral Kirby, the spokesman for the Pentagon's, you know what? I totally misspoke. My fault. I did not mean to say that. What I meant to say was, yes, at least through September, we will continue to provide air cover and support. And what? So, in other words, it's going to be very hard to leave there. Now, I'll tell you what. Um, the great Peter Van Buren, the former State Department official who was in Iraq War II and wrote the book We Meant Well and is a regular writer for the American Conservative Magazine, he wrote a piece where he says, look, Biden is a one-term president, and he knows he's a one-term president. And as much as we may not like him for these or those other reasons, that means he can basically do what he wants, and he doesn't really have to do what it, you know he's being told. And there are hiring decisions that he has made that could have been much worse and there have been, you know, military and political decisions that he has made that have been much less worse than if Trump or Hillary had made them. So far, we'll see. I mean, again, he canceled Trump's deal on Afghanistan, but it does look, they're kicking and screaming and fits and starts here, but it does look like they're trying to get back into the nuclear deal with Iran. They saved the new START treaty with Russia and have proposed talks with, you know, between Biden and Putin here soon. And so... You know, in the scheme of things, things could be less worse. And I guess Van Buren's point was that he thinks that Biden really wants out of Afghanistan, and that he knows that if he was a younger two-term president and, you know, with all this ambition and all that, that he would be forced to compromise more and that, you know, he really does want to wind the thing down. My problem with that is, you know, Biden's idea of drawing down in Afghanistan has always been that we leave forces there for counterterrorism. But what counterterrorism, right? ISIS in Afghanistan is just ISIS-K, which is just an alias really for the Pakistani Taliban, the Tariki Taliban, or a break-off faction of it, and then other break-off factions of the Afghan Taliban that have joined them. But we're still, we're still talking about local Pashtun militia fighters, right? These are not international bin Ladenite suicide bomber hijacker types um, at all. So it's just a, a franchise, a name that was named after the caliphate that hasn't existed for four years now, right? Um, and uh, and then, if this is so disappointing, if you ever read the media and claims of al-Qaeda presence in Afghanistan, they say, well, you know, we killed uh, three local uh, Pashtun militia fighters and an al-Qaeda guy. But they never say, oh, yeah, well, what was his name? And where was he from? And what makes him an Al-Qaeda guy and not just some bum, right? Is he Chechen? He's got a red beard. Is he Egyptian? He's an old friend of Ayman al-Zawahiri. What makes him an Al-Qaeda guy? Just they say so. And then sometimes, and they try to get away with it. It seems like they would just lie. But they actually try to say, yeah, you know, there's a real problem lately. We've identified a few members of al-qaeda in the indian subcontinent uh-huh yeah boy you know what that sounds like somebody else's problem to me are you kidding al-qaeda in the indian subcontinent meaning on the far side of pakistan from afghanistan a couple of men have been spotted allegedly supposedly on the afghan side of the line from pakistan 
And therefore, what? That's a writ for the United States to stay in Afghanistan? When, what are we, we're talking about Lashkar-e-Taiba or one of these groups that fights in Kashmir or something that doesn't have anything to do with us. In fact, the only thing Kashmir should have to do with us is America should be a limited republic where our only role in the world is hosting peace conferences, where we have no stake in it and no interest, and we're not bribing anybody with our tax money, but we are willing to host a peace conference so that the Indians and the Pakistanis and the poor Kashmiris can figure out who's going to be sovereign over that territory without a dog in the fight, right, as a genuine, peaceful you know, um, uninterested broker. It should be the only thing that has to do with us. But that's a writ to stay in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. Come on, man. You know, this is at this point, this ought to be trying everyone's patience as bad as it is mine. Yeah, I mean, so last night he did say, we will suppress future threats to the homeland. And in 20 years, the threat has metastasized. The threat has evolved way beyond Afghanistan. So what, what does he mean by that then? Well, of course, he's right. It's all his fault, right? I mean, he could have picked up Barack Obama and body slammed him to the ground and said, no, we are not going to start a war in Libya. You know? And he would have been under arrest, but so? He would have saved, what, three quarters of a million lives or something? If you count everybody that died in the war in Syria, that was the, the direct result of that. He was the vice president in the room. He could have put his hands on the president and said, don't you do this. You SOB grabbed him by his tie in front of the secret service. Don't you do this. Instead, what do he do? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I guess I don't think you should, but if you want to. And then what Obama do? You know, he started a war in Libya that's killed, you know, probably 100,000 people. Certainly tens of thousands of people have died there. And the, the whole state has been reduced to... Uh, essentially, you know, warring tribes again. It was only a centralized state after World War II, not even after World War I. And now it's just the strongest gangster in whatever region thrives there. And, uh, and then, of course, they sent the jihadists from there on to Syria, killed another half a million people. And, and their policy led, in Biden's own words, in Biden's own words, just type in Joe Biden, Harvard, ISIS, it's right there. And he explains how it was all of our allies uh -huh, coordinated by the CIA, coordinated by the Barack Obama government that supported the Al-Qaeda side in that war until it led to the rise of the Islamic State Caliphate. And then they had to go back to war to destroy it again. He explains the whole thing of this in the fall of 2014. He gives the short history of how it was all his doing. And then so, yes, it's true. And this is the way my book starts. Um, and ends. I don't argue that there's no Al-Qaeda left, there's no terrorists left, and there is no threat. That's not true. As long as we have a policy of dominance in the region, the now at least low thousands of bin Ladenites, or, you know, look, if, if you want to talk, let's, let's define this as narrowly as we can, okay? Guys who are willing to go on missions against targets in the West, right? Guys who are international jihadist terrorists, intent on targeting Americans, uh, Europeans, and Israelis, etc. Okay, those guys are in at least the high hundreds, the very low thousands of guys in the world. Bin Laden's group is right now at least, what, 10, 20 times what it was. Uh, and it's at a low point now, right? The caliphate has been smashed. The, the worst of the jihadist threat concentrating the world right now is in the Idlib province under American and Turkish protection, frankly, uh, from the Assad government and their Russian allies there. And um, because America's still on the wrong side of that war. And, um, and so, um, you know, it's true that there is still a threat out there. The way to fight that threat is to abandon empire entirely, not just pivot to China and, you know, prop up Egypt and Saudi Arabia, but a little less blatantly than before or something like that, that's not going to cut it. That is not going to protect the American people. So what this is, we're essentially at the 1990s policy of the Bill Clinton years that will back these guys and turn a blind eye to their violence and we'll pretend like they're not coming for us still. You know, but as we've seen with September 11th, as we've seen with the Benghazi attack of 2012 in Libya, 
And just because America backs these guys doesn't mean that they won't turn right around and still attack us. You know, Bill Clinton was backing Al-Qaeda linked forces, very closely linked in the Kosovo Liberation Army in uh, the Kosovo-Serbia War of 1999. And they hit us like one year later in the coal in the year 2000 and one year again after that on September 11th. They hadn't been bought off by Bill Clinton's support for them and his kind of idea. And in fact, I quote in, in uh, the first book, I got the footnotes and everything for Bill Clinton, uh, Senator Tom Lantos and Representative Brad Sherman all said, well, I can't believe these Muslims would attack us like this after everything we've done for them lately. And that was what they meant. Bosnia, Kosovo and Chechnya where they were on the side of the Bin Ladenites. Yeah, but you still have bases in Saudi Arabia that you're using to bomb Iraqis and you're still supporting the Israelis in Palestine and Lebanon. Until that changes, their motivation to attack the United States hasn't been lifted, right? It's the same thing here. We still have dominance, as they call it, hegemony in the Middle East. And as long as that's true, these guys are going to want to fight us. You know, and it's not just because they're angry and want and are, you know, want revenge. It's that the, uh, they're trying to bog us down, bleed us to bankruptcy, and force us out the hard way. Um, you know, I quote this over and over again. I guess I could have quoted this in, in the book on the Iraq War II section. I think I even had this in my notes and maybe forgot it. There was a letter from an al-Qaeda leader in Pakistan speaking on behalf of bin Laden and uh, Zawahiri. And in instructions essentially to the new leaders of Zarqawi's group after Zarqawi had been killed in 06. And it was, I guess this would have been like in, yeah, because in, in 06 was when they did the Iraq study group and recommended we leave. And then Bush doubled down with the surge in, the, in 07. And then they start drawing down like 08. So um, the, in the letter, they say that, and, and, you know, I think the Pentagon was the source for this, but it was against interest, you know, or, you know, it seemed more like the kind of thing that like, if you were their superior officer, you might've told them to not release it. Cause it kind of, you know, went counter to their narrative. I don't know. Um, but what the message said was that, listen, we don't want the Americans to withdraw yet. Do whatever you can to bog them down. They've only spent a couple of trillion, a few trillion. Now we don't want them to leave till they spent 10 trillion. We don't want them to leave until they've lost 300,000 men. We don't want them to leave until their treasury's broken, where they're really sick and tired of war in the Middle East and really leave and go home. Right now, they're cheating us, right? Essentially, it was the, Shi the Shiites we fought the war and won the war for. Mm -hmm. We're cheating the Bin Ladenites out of their plan because they had won the war. The side we chose won the war and then said, okay, now you can beat it because we don't need you anymore. Right. And so that wasn't conducive to the bin Ladenite plan. They were so happy to have us in Iraq. They would have had a stay in full scale war in Iraq for another 10 or 15 or 20 years or whatever it took till America was broken and then leave in a way that they can be confident we're not coming back, you know? And so, not that I'm trying to give advice to these guys, but, you know, I mean, look at what happened when, when uh, Baghdadi said, I want my caliphate now and declared himself the caliph. And Zawahiri said, don't do that. Just keep fighting. The Americans are going to come get you. Here, the Americans have been on our side basically this whole time, but now you're going too far, and the Americans are going to come and bomb you off the face of the earth. That was the whole point of the far enemy strategy in the first place, was we can't do what we want until they are gone, right? And then so Baghdadi tries it, and then what does Obama do? He comes in and carpet bombs them, takes the side of the Shiites against them again, destroys the caliphate, and proves the Wahiri right. That until the Americans are all the way gone, there's no point in trying to do what we want to do now. And so for the medium term, keep fighting the Americans and keep coming up with reasons for the Americans to stay. And so what does that mean? That means shed blood. Yeah. Right? And so... Um, in fact, you know, a few small like machine gun attacks might convince Americans to just quit. But a September 11th type attack might get them really GD mad again 
and ready to go back over there. And I'll show you. Remember what happened last time? Yeah, well, we'll carpet bomb your ass again and go over there and double down. Maybe blame this one on the Ayatollah, which is exactly what Ayman al-Zawahiri, the radical Sunni bin Ladenite, would want um, to go after the Shiites, right? But something like that um, to essentially reset the last 20 years to do it again. Yeah. So you know, I guess it, my next question involves the difference between, you know, ISIS's goals and Al-Qaeda's goals then. Because, and I'm not sure I'm going to, I'm going to make a lot of sense, but if, if the goal is for us to leave um, and for them to bleed us out and we leave before then, um, what, what's the argument? Because, because a lot of people say, well, you know, we'll just leave a safe haven or something like that for Al-Qaeda to, or a caliphate to, to form. So if we did leave, would that essentially just be giving Al-Qaeda a win? No, I mean, so that's the whole joke, right? From the very beginning, their strategy depended on America coming and turning the region over for them, right? The idea that bin Laden and Zawahiri in 2001 could have overthrown the kingdom of Saudi Arabia or the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein or Hosni Mubarak is a ridiculous joke, right? And even right now, if America just dried up and blew away off of the face of the earth for whatever magic reason and, and had nothing to do with this anymore, there's nation states in the way. Yeah. The only reason they were able to make the caliphate quite contrary to the current talking points is not just because it's partially, I concede partially because it's true. But it's not just because Obama obeyed the deal that Bush signed with the Iraqi Shiites, that we would have the new government Bush had created, that we would be out by the end of 2011. It said he backed al-Qaeda in Syria for three years before that. That was what it was. 2011, 2012, 2013, America, Saudi, Qatar, Jordan, Turkey, and Israel were pouring billions of dollars and weapons directly into the hands of al-Qaeda terrorists. The bad guys from Iraq War II, al-Qaeda in Iraq, we're the leaders of this whole thing. And then in 2013, ISIS split from Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda in Syria and declared their own thing. And that was just essentially the Iraqi-dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in Iraq in Syria splitting from the Syrian-dominated faction of Al-Qaeda in Iraq in Syria, right? And so um, Baghdadi declared his caliphate, conquered Western Iraq, which was wide open for the taking because of the policy of the previous administration that they had put the most chauvinist of Shiites in power in uh, Baghdad in the name of Nuri al-Maliki and the Dawa party and the Supreme Islamic Council. So once they had taken the capital city and all the oil resources, they had just cut the west of the country loose. Go burn in the sun, former Sunni dictatorship. Screw you guys. You know, they didn't want to rule over them. They just wanted to abandon them. So essentially, Western Iraq was just stateless, unarmed, and uh, wide open for the taking. And it was, and ISIS, you know, came to an agreement with the Iraqi tribes that, you know what, that whole thing about if you can't beat them, join them. You can't beat us. Join us now so that it goes easy for you. And then that was what they did. And so they just essentially rolled right in and took over all of Western Iraq. But so that's not Obama's fault for leaving Iraq. That's Obama's fault for backing al-Qaeda in Syria for years leading up to that. And then, yes, it's true, last step on the chain, if America had still had massive air assets inside Iraq, it would have been a lot easier to carpet bomb that ISIS caravan cruising from Raqqa you know, across the border to take Mosul in June of 2013. That much is true, but it's still just an isolated fact out of context. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, you look at the map. There's the kingdom of Jordan, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the now Shiite supermajority dominated government in Baghdad and all the land east of there. And they are still, they are again, I guess, the predominant power in the west of the country too. And in Syria, the only thing preventing the Bashar al-Assad government, which is allied with the Shiites, uh, that is the anti-Al-Qaeda side, from reestablishing their monopoly on power in that state is the Americans are in their way. And the Americans are preventing the Kurds from striking a final deal to just let the Syrian Arab army come in and take over that border area. 
and the Americans get out because they're there in the name of not al okay, Sometimes they mention Al-Qaeda and ISIS, but really they're there because of Iran, the other side of the war. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they say so. And so um, anyway, I mean, you have on one hand, a bunch of like, you know, gold-plated, corrupt Saudi kings, right? With these massive internal security forces and an unlimited budget to spend on them. And the rest of the Arabian kings and sheiks and emirs and El Presidentes of the, of the peninsula there. Uh, you know, in, in Kuwait, there's uh, it's an extremely stable dictatorship kingdom, uh, you know, monarchy there more or less the same in Jordan. And if the kingdom of Jordan did fall, I have no reason to think that, oh, it would be Al-Qaeda would be the next natural guys to inherit the power there. There's no reason to believe that that's true at all. And then again, you know, in Syria, they're dominated by the Alawites in alliance with the Shiites, and they just finished winning a war against these bin Ladenites. So, and that was with America backing the bin Ladenites, not helping the Shiites keep them down, okay? So in other words, if America had nothing to do with this anymore, you have on one side a bunch of Sunni monarchs and dictators who want to hang on to power and who control these modern nation states. And then on the other side, you have Iran and their Shiite friends and Hezbollah and, and, uh, and in uh, Damascus and in Baghdad. And, and every single group on this list, all of them have an interest in keeping bin Ladenites down. And none of them have an interest in using them. I mean, Al-Qaeda, will, uh, the Saudis will use them in alliance with the United States. They have cover for the U.S. to use them like in Yemen or in Syria. But without the U.S. you know, providing cover for that and, and permission for that, that's absolutely not the case. In fact, there's a brand new um, uh, article out by Trita Parsi today about how um, now that Biden is trying to get back into the nuclear deal and he's signaling that he really wants to pivot to China, as horrible as that is, that he's trying to essentially back out of the Middle East. He's kept Netanyahu more or less at arm's length. He has not gone around bowing and scraping before all the Sunni uh, kings of Arabia, promising them unlimited support forever, the way he has done with Ukraine and, and other you know horrible things he shouldn't be doing. But he, he's really taken this sort of eh, <clears throat> back offshore sort of uh, stance toward the Middle East. And very quickly, Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto king and, and will be the king of Saudi Arabia, sent his guys to start talking with the Iranians. And they've been holding secret talks in Iraq for weeks and weeks. And, and the UAE's in on it and everything else, too. So as Trita says, Unlike in all of the accusations that, oh, if we leave the whole country, the whole place will go to chaos. Or, no, no, no. America's causing the chaos. If you were a Saudi king and you had the Americans at your beck and call to do whatever you want, you'd do whatever you wanted. But if you did not have the Americans at your beck and call to do whatever you wanted, well, then your options are very constrained, aren't they? And you really want to have a full-scale Cold War, even hot war with Iran? If you don't have a guarantee the Americans are going to come and handle it all for you, yeah, maybe not. Maybe Mohammed bin Salman isn't even that brave. And so instead he goes with his hat in hand to the Ayatollah and says, let's talk. So yeah. now the threat of, again, like the worst concentration of Al-Qaeda guys right now in the Middle East is in the Idlib province, where they're under the protection of the Turks and the Americans, um, you know, and where if it wasn't for that, it would be the Russians and the Syrian government would take care of them. But there's no sovereign state anywhere in the region that they really threaten or could achieve a regime change. The only way Al-Qaeda in the Idlib province now, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham and Haras al-Din and these other groups, the only way that they could seize Damascus now would be if Biden carpet bombed Damascus and like sent in full scale military support to smash the Syrian Arab army, which even Obama was afraid to do all those years of backing the terrorists. He, he did not do what it took, what it would have taken to smash the Syrians armor and air power, which, he, you know, the U.S. Navy could do in a few days. And they never did that. Is Biden still preparing to like back rebels in Syria then? Like, cause I, I heard your interview about Jelani. So what's going on there? 
Yeah, I really don't know. That's a really great question. I mean, it's clear that the Turks have set up this new PR campaign to normalize Jelani and American support for them. But I don't know if they're going to get away with it or not. And I, I really, um, I can't say I've, I've seen many indications that they're starting this back up now. I think we're seeing an attempt to do that, but I don't know if that's really led by anybody in the White House or not. Okay. I mean, they would be absolutely crazy. And it's, you know, when it comes to, to Biden and Blinken and these guys, it's not like they're lost on who's who. You know what I mean? They know that'd be absolutely bananas now. To, you know, they can, they can posture and say they want Assad gone or something like that, but Assad mm -hmm. won the war. They're going to start it back over again and for just... Zarqawi in a suit. I mean, come on, this is crazy. And, and, you know, Jolani, he just put on the suit that one time for the frontline interview. The rest of the time he's soaking in the blood of the guy whose head he just cut off. I and mean, mm. what are we talking about? This is nuts. And this is, he's no different than Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, you know, the sub bin Ladenite here. And so I'll tell you what, I will be impressed, Liam, if they really start that back up again. Just in a man, oh man, can you believe it kind of a way? Like that would really be something else for them to go back to that absolutely catastrophic and blatantly treasonous on its face policy of backing these terrorists. I mean, my God, man, I get it. It's 2021 and these are crazy times and everything. <laughs> the fact that the fact that Frontline went to even produce that thing the way that they did goes to show we live in bizarre world already, you know, so who knows? Yeah. what could happen and by the way i'm reclaiming bizarre world because i used to say that before i ever read Ramondo back in the 90s i would say god it's like it's bizarre world and the sun is red and superman's a bad guy and janet reno is the chief of the department of justice can you believe it you know and then justin he would always write bizarre world this and bizarre world that and now justin's dead so i'm reclaiming bizarre world and yes the fact that martin smith went and interviewed this blood-soaked terrorist monster on behalf of the Turks and the CIA and whoever put them up to it and in order to at least do a trial balloon for the rehabilitation? How about just the habilitation of the leader of Al-Qaeda in Syria? I mean, man, it's really something to see. But then again, Obama backed him for five years, right? So what the hell? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do want to get to some other areas in the world right oh, now. Oh, I better but, be quiet um, then. Go ahead. Well, the first thing, though, I, I just wanted to deal with one other objection in Afghanistan. Uh -huh. um, when he first announced there was the ob objection that women's rights will be curbed by the Taliban. So what what's your argument against that? I mean, because it's obvious that the Taliban is pretty tyrannical when it comes to that. But do we have? Yeah, I mean, so is the current regime. Yeah, uh, it's in the book. Uh, Fool's Aaron. It's also in. Um, if you just read the uh, statistics at the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, all the stats about the advances for women and girls are a bunch of crap. All the stats for, oh, look at all the schools we built. No, they didn't. They piled up some cinder blocks out in the countryside somewhere. No plumbing, no desks, no teachers, no students, no school. You know, the whole thing, the entire thing about rebuilding Afghan society in this way is just nonsense. Now, yes, there are some uh, girls' schools in the capital city and some of the places in the north, um, but this is a Potemkin village. This is a joke, right? You know that phrase where they, they took this guy Potemkin around and gave him a tour of Soviet Russia where everybody's starving to death and everything's chaos all around, but they have these few very nice villages to take him and show him, you know? Um, and that's essentially what that is. You know, the, the reality is that oppression of women in Afghanistan is absolutely endemic, and it always has been. And I quote in my book, Ann Jones, this wonderful journalist who spent so many years there at the worst part of this war. And she says, the number one priority of the police and Afghan security forces is hunting down runaway women and girls. Okay. Those are the guys we've backed in power for 20 years here, pal. Yeah. Okay. That's who they are. They are slave catchers. Okay. The, the police chief and the mayor and the governor that America put in power are child rapists and murderers and heroin dealers 
criminals, warlords. Okay? They are the bad guys. And that doesn't mean the Taliban are the good guys because the Taliban are not. They are also ruthless killers. However, these things are relative and comparative. And as Anand Gopal shows in his book, No Good Men Among the Living, as very, you know, fundamentalist and right-wing and reactionary as the Taliban's branch of Islam is, the Hanafi rights, or even, I guess, to be more specific, their interpretation of Hanafi rights, Sunni Islam, is extremely austere and backwards and old and fundamentalist, okay? And yet, they're like Ms. Magazine compared to the ancient Pashtun Wali code. And under the ancient Pashtun Wali tribal code, which goes back three, four, five thousand years, whatever it is, women have no rights any more than livestock at all. So, but Muhammad doesn't treat women like that. And Muhammad's strictures to his people are, are much different. And so on, as Gopal shows, on the all-important question of property ownership, the Taliban made it. Emphasis on force there. The Taliban made it the law that women can own property. They can buy and sell it. They can inherit it. And they can own it. And that is step one of human rights for women there. And don't get me wrong, because I'm not saying, yeah, and steps two through 10 are coming soon because of how great the Taliban are. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying the Pashtun Wali code is negative one. Yeah. You know, it's it's a really oppressive society. And listen, you know, Afghanistan is the size of Texas, but the topography is like Colorado or something, you know, much more comparative. There's also these deserts where there's these deep valleys where these are essentially their own little mini nations, their own little city states. They're not even cities, their own little valley states, right? They have their own languages, their own, you know, dialects that are so severely different from each other that like they're damn near separate languages from valley to valley to valley. And they don't think of themselves as Afghans. Many of them have never heard of the name Afghanistan. And I'm not talking about the people in the city or everyone in the country. I'm talking about these people who live out in the countryside, these people who live in some of these deep mountain valleys. They're completely isolated. They've never heard of the new world before. And I've, I've, when I saw you in Montana, I talked about my anecdote of I've heard this over and over again, a hundred times over, including from the uh, great American whistleblower hero, Matthew Ho, that yet when we got there, they thought we were the Russians because th this or that group of people they were dealing with were so isolated that they didn't know the Russians had left, much less that the Americans had invaded. And they didn't know what an American was because they had never heard of the new world before. They had never even heard of it. And then when I was telling that story, your buddy said to me, yep, that's what happened to me when I was over there. They thought I was a Russian and told the exact same story. Afghan war vet there at the speech said, yep, that was my experience too, right? And these are the people that we're at war with. Uh, you know, I quote uh, Frank uh, Ledwidge, the British... Um, naval intelligence official who was stationed down in the Helmand province. And he told me, he said, when I say to these people, they, these people say to me, you know, why are you here? Why are you at war with us? And he's a Brit, right? Mm -hmm. I think, why are you, why are you back here? Right. They just left a, a mere, you know, hundred years ago or whatever. Why are you back here? And he goes, well, some Arabs crashed a plane into a building in a village called New York in a valley far away from here. Because that's the only way he can explain it that they would even understand. They don't know what a city is. If he said a city, they would say, what's that? So he has to call it a village, the village of New York, which they've never heard of, right? The most important city on the planet, right? Where the United Nations headquarters is, the financial heart of the planet Earth. And they've never heard of it before. In a village called New York, in a valley far away from here, some Arabs crashed a plane. And then they say to me, well, what's that got to do with us? Yep. And then his answer is, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't really seem <laughs> yeah. fair, does it? You know? 
And then, but meanwhile, there's their cousin is full of holes dead for defending the neighborhood from this foreign invasion that the invaders themselves cannot explain in any rational way whatsoever and know it and laugh about it and scoff sarcastically and say, what are you going to do? That's the way it is. Yeah. Well, I want to get to Ukraine because, um, so even last night, or I think it was actually a couple of weeks ago in one of his speeches, he said that he declared support for Ukraine's territorial sovereignty. Um, to a layperson, it kind of looks like we're escalating there. So can you tell us what's going on? Are they going to, when, when Biden says that he's reorganizing counterterrorism capabilities, does that mean that they're sending troops there? Are they sending people to Ukraine to, to help? No, them no. And, and the good news is they back down there. I mean, first of all, the bad news is that, look, we just were close to a war with Russia. Yeah. That's what you're talking about here was the Biden government was telling the government of Ukraine to get brave. And no matter what you do, we'll back you up. We don't have an alliance, a treaty of alliance with Ukraine. In fact, that's a huge part of the controversy is whether we're going to bring them into the NATO alliance or not. Imagine Ukraine being part of something called the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. What? <laughs> have you ever heard of Ukraine before? Over there, north of the Black Sea, east of the Balkans, east of Hungary, right? East of what we ever called Eastern Europe east of romania and bulgaria okay is where ukraine is that's the north atlantic treaty organization's jurisdiction really and it's not and then biden was given a bunch of war guarantees anyway and was essentially uh, you know selling weapons and and bolstering the ukrainian government where it was i guess they thought that they were going to go ahead and really escalate the war in the east of the country and you know try to crush crush the separatist movement there that of course is the reaction from the american backed coup of 2014 and there was a terrible war there in the east of the country in 2014 and 15 and there's been a somewhat peaceful peace since then although there's always uh, some skirmishes and fighting there but you might have heard all the headlines uh, if you heard anything about the crisis, you probably heard step two in the crisis was Putin's response was he lined up, I don't know how many tens of thousands of men on the Ukrainian border and with all their equipment and essentially an invasion force. And then uh, Biden was on his way was sending um, part of the Mediterranean fleet, I'm not sure how much, but into the Black Sea, which mm -hmm. the Americans are always screwing around the Black Sea where they have no business whatsoever anyway but he was reinforcing them. And then I don't know exactly who called who. Apparently Biden called Putin. Although I think Ray McGovern said that, I, I don't think he explained how he knew this, but I think he said that Putin sent a message. Hey, let's talk. And then Biden called him. And then the discussion was, listen, we could have a war, but neither of us want to do that. But we're pretty close to that right now. And is that what we're going to do? I mean, for all the S they talk about Vladimir Putin and what a, you know, serial killer he is, you know, I kind of like the emotionless quality to the way he does business. Like, I'm sure that's really bad if you are, if you cross him in Russian politics, he might not care at all about cutting your throat. I don't know. Mm. But the Americans will call him a soulless, evil killer monster. And he goes, and, you know, sometimes we have disagreements with our American partners about some things, but we try to get along where we can in our areas of mutual interest. Like, you know what? This guy's a pretty cool customer. I'm not saying he's not dangerous to people around there, but he tries very hard to make it explicit that he's not dangerous to the United States. And that's not an act. That's not like he's trying to fool us into lowering our guard and then the USSR is going to, you know, come back or anything like that. He's just trying to make it clear that, look, you guys increase your military spending. I cut mine. Uh-uh, we're going down by 5%. That was a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a deliberate signal that, look, man, I don't want to fight and you don't want to fight and who wants to fight? And, and, um, and then so Biden called it off. Biden called the Black Sea Fleet off and told them to go to Cyprus for repairs. Whew. And then, so that was it. And then, and then, um, uh, 
Ukrainian government called back their forces or at least stopped reinforcing them. I'm not exactly sure the details there. And then what I read was that Putin had his men leave all their equipment in place, but go back to their barracks, right? So this is all messaging. But, you know, if you listen to the media, they'll be like, oh, my God, the Russian troops are moving around right on Ukraine's border. In other words, inside Russia, troops are moving around inside Russia. You know, Hillary Clinton did this back a few years ago under Obama was the nerve of this Putin. He you realize he is moving troops right on NATO's doorstep. And she's talking about literally on the other side of the line from Latvia. Where America has brought the Baltic states directly into the NATO alliance, where we have troops parading, and, and this was true under Obama and under Trump. We have troops parading and exercising within a few hundred yards of the Russian border. And she's saying the nerve of those Russians to move troops on NATO's doorstep when she's the one who built her own front porch all the way across the street up to her neighbor's front door. And then she wants to complain he's sitting in his living room. Things completely crazy. And, and they don't even know how full of it they are. You listen to these people, they believe every word of how they're defending Europe from Russian aggression. And, you know, we may get through this yet, but we'll be lucky to. Yeah. So how eager is Russia? Because I don't really know anything about the territorial dispute there. Like, because it seems there's a precedent here if Russia does want the territory back. Um, oh, they don't. No, they don't. So here's the thing. In 2014, again, America did a coup in the, uh, you know, a street putsch, essentially, in February of 2014. And then after that, some former presidents signed a letter saying it's time for us to kick the Russians out of Sevastopol which is their naval base on the Crimean Peninsula. They're only warm water, 20, you know, uh, all year round warm water port. And, um, and then the Russians just took it. And they had had that base there since 1991. And the fall of the Soviet Union, they kept their base and the status quo had held. And the only reason that they decided to then go ahead and steal the whole uh, or take whatever the whole dang peninsula um, was because the Ukrainians were threatening to kick them out of that naval base. So it was the Americans that had disrupted the status quo. And then when the Russians took the Crimean Peninsula, they just went outside and took it. They didn't even kill anybody at all. Nobody. In fact, I saw the footage of the two shots that were fired over the heads of some Ukrainian soldiers and the Russians tell them, you boys need to turn around and go the other way. And they do. And that's it. And so they took the whole thing without killing anyone. It was a coup de main, as they call it. And in fact, a coup de main usually means one big battle. In this case, it wasn't even that. It was like the Anschluss where Hitler just rolled right into Austria and said, this belongs to me now kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so they just took it. And the Americans threw fit over it, but what are they going to do about it? But then in the east of the country, in what's called the Donbass region in the provinces, or I don't know if they call them probably the districts, I guess, of Donetsk and Luhansk. They said, well, look, if you guys can occupy all these government buildings and overthrow the our democratically elected president who we voted for and, and legitimately won the last election, according to the EU observers and everything, then we can occupy all the buildings in the east and we can refuse to recognize the authority of your new coup d'etat junta. How do you like that? So then they took over all those buildings and then having faced the uh, humiliation of the loss of the Crimean Peninsula, knowing they couldn't do anything about that, the new government declared a war on terrorism and invaded the East and tried to crush the resistance, you know, uprising in the East, which did not work. And so they fought essentially a two-year war and the Russians did spend, uh, did send their, you know, Spetsnaz or whatever other special operations forces across the border to help them fight. But they never invaded. In fact, it was a very important false narrative at the time that over and over again, the American uh, press reported the Russians invade Ukraine. And it was like, yeah, no, what you mean is the head of NATO lied that and you printed at the top of the New York Times and you had no independent verification of whether it was true and it wasn't. Right. They never sent their infantry and their armor divisions across. They never tried to move the line. They just sent their special operations forces across to help the people defend themselves from assault by their so-called own government. 
Um, that's just the fact of it. Doesn't mean it's great, and it doesn't mean they never killed any civilians in their side of the war or anything like that, but it does mean it was absolutely a response to American and Kiev-based aggression against those people. And then in, I think it was in late 2014, it might've been in 2015, they held a plebiscite, a referendum, and asked to, and, and voted in, in huge numbers that they chose, the Donetsk region, I mean, um, voted to join the Russian Federation. Like Crimea had, had uh, Crimea had essentially, uh, the Crimeans had ratified their absorption in a referendum after the fact. Well, these guys held a referendum and said, we want to join the Russian Federation. And Putin told them no. And yes, we want to join one, the supermajority of the vote or whatever. Putin told them no, because what would he be doing? Essentially, he would be taking ownership of a bunch of pensioners and a bunch of decrepit old non-profitable industries left over from the Soviet era that you know these people and that was one of the reasons they didn't want to join the eu is because they had everything to lose there's no way that that old their old what's left of ukrainian industry in the east could have competed with the europeans with no tariffs and so but this is the same reason why putin didn't want them right um now here's the thing could america provoke such a crisis that putin decides that okay fine i will take it then yes and i think you know there's it makes sense if they provoke such a fight that Putin decided he was going to go ahead and take the Donetsk region. I bet he'd probably march. He could march. In fact, this was in um, in uh, Douglas McGregor's uh, recent article. Douglas McGregor, the formal armor, former army colonel, who uh, essentially came up with one of the plans for how to fight the Russians in Eastern Europe if we ever do fight them. Uh, he was warning that, look, if it comes to this, he's going to march all the way to the... Um, I forgot, I'm sorry, my wife will smack me because I don't remember the name of the river that, that divides Ukraine essentially in half and runs right down near the port of Odessa. And that's her hometown. My wife's hometown there is the city of Odessa right there on the uh, Black Sea. And that's about, it's in, the, it's in the far south of the country, right about halfway. And so, and, and in fact, Kiev is not much further west than that, I don't think. Where's my map here? Um, <laughs> Oh, I can't see. I can't see on here. But uh, I, th I think Kiev is is essentially like you know north central as well. So I don't know if they'd go as far as Kiev, but they would. Um, they could certainly go to. I think and Kiev, I think, is on the west side of the river at least. Um, but if they decided to, you know, um, Putin uh, told an Italian. I'm sorry, the guy whoever sent me this link. Thank you for the footnote. I've kept screwing this up. I thought it was a Norwegian. It was an Italian um politician or foreign minister or something um diplomat that putin told him you know we could be in kiev in two weeks in other words don't bring ukraine into nato or we will be in kiev in two weeks right. so just like if the russians try imagine if the russians supported a violent street putsch which did I mention the role of the Hitler-loving Nazis in overthrowing the government of Ukraine there in 2014? Imagine the Russians had backed a bunch of, and I don't mean tiki torches, I mean real-ass torchlight parade Nazi, you know, Hitler-loving Nazis, not college kids, but real dangerous people, mm -hmm. um, to overthrow the government in Ottawa, Canada, in order to bring Ottawa into... Uh, the Russians Warsaw Pact military alliance against the United States. And what do you think any president would say? Listen, we can be in Ottawa in two days. Yeah. You know, we're not, you, we let you somehow get away with overthrowing the government there and using a bunch of Nazis to do it. Um, we're not letting you bring them into your military alliance. And in fact, I think we all know if you put the shoe on the other foot for a minute, the, when the Soviets tried to put missiles in Cuba, Jack Kennedy said, I'll kill everybody on earth before I let you keep those missiles in Cuba. Test me. And they pulled the missiles out of Cuba and he agreed to pull them out of Turkey too. But that was a red line. He said, red line. You want to go to nuclear war? Get those missiles out now. Right? So in other words, let's get real. If the Russians really, and I don't mean some BS story like collusion with Trump. I mean, if they really overthrew the government of Mexico or Canada, America would go to nuclear war. We do not wait around to ask whether they're going to join the Russians, NATO. 
we would go straight to nuking Moscow that afternoon, and everybody knows it, okay? But somehow, these guys who are led by the evil Hitlerite Vladimir Putin, you know, whose family all died fighting the Nazis, but anyway, mm-hmm. um, this irrational, merciless, uh, psychopathic, sociopathic murderer, you know, unstable, madman, autocrat, he just better sit there and take it when we're willing to do all of this to him. Him and his whole government, what are they going to do about it? That's our policy, that the Russians can't have red lines because our army is bigger than theirs. Well, you know what? There are a lot of countries that have smaller armies than ours that have red lines. Like, remember when Ho Chi Minh said, you can't have Vietnam? And I'll fight to the last Vietnamese to get your white asses off of our land. And remember how Ho Chi Minh won and the Americans lost? Same thing with the Taliban in Afghanistan now. You think the Taliban were ever under any illusions about the power of American airstrikes after after the very first week of October 2001? when they saw these um, joint direct attack munitions absolutely obliterating their infantry in the space of a few days. I think they were ever confused about the disparity in power, in firepower between the United States and themselves. And yet, what did they say? Get out, get out. And the Americans said, look, let's make a deal. And they said, okay, we'll make a deal, get out. You wanna break the deal? It's on you when violence returns. That's what they wrote on the Taliban website. Because we only have one condition. Get out. And they know that the Americans can kill them. America's been killing them this whole time. And their red line is, get out. And now Vladimir Putin is supposed to be this raving madman. And our policy is, take it and take it and take it and take it. And he couldn't possibly have a red line because what's he going to do about it? That's not smart. It's not. And they've made themselves clear, right? It's in the WikiLeaks. Thanks to uh, Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange. You can read it. And yet means and yet is what uh, the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, told our current head of the CIA. In fact, um, uh, our friend Ray McGovern, the former CIA analyst, former head of the Soviet division, was just relieved as could be that Bill Burns, who I guess he knows him a lot better than I do. I don't know much about the guy. In fact, when I first heard, I was like, oh, no, not William Burns. But I was thinking of Nicholas Burns. That's different. That was George Bush's guy. Um, But no, so Ray McGovern was like really hopeful because Ray is like, hey, this is the guy that Lavrov told him, yet means yet. And he wrote home, hey, man, I met with Lavrov today and he told me Niet means Niet. <laughs> and that's the tone of his message home is like, I was listening at the time. I think maybe we should listen. Yeah. So, I'll, you know, I'll take that. It's it's certainly more reasonable than if we had just, you know, I don't know, uh, Gina Haspel and Mike Pompeo running this thing. Yeah, seriously. And then do we have to wrap up? I was only scheduled for an hour. I don't sure. know what your time Oh, is. yeah. And I got to go. I got to do Tommy. So one more real quick here. Okay. Um, yeah, so I just I just want to bring it back to uh, domestic policy really quick. He says that uh, Biden says that intelligence agencies have determined to be the most lethal threat to our homeland today. White supremacy is terrorism. If you want to just cover that really briefly, and then we can let you go. You know what? I mean, I think in a way that's like a backhanded way of saying that there are no threats. Right. The worst white supremacist groups in this country are all in prison already. Right. And that's where they come from is these prison gangs. And, you know, I'm not the greatest chronicler of this, but you have the, the various avowed white power groups who have essentially no power at all. And so it's true that they could commit violent crimes uh, against innocent blacks and Jews and Sikhs and, and whoever. And they do. But the kind of violence that they commit in this country is so marginal. I mean, we're talking single digits every year of of people killed by them and so it's terrible for the people involved but is there actually i mean let's get real for a second here you think there's an avowed white racist movement 
that has any power in any state house in this land. Now, there are judges who might as well be wearing a white hood, you know, don't get me wrong, but that there's like an organized white supremacist movement that has political power of any kind? No. Like the worst you could say about them is they're infiltrating our sheriff's departments, right? They're, they're you know, they're, um, but do they own businesses? Do they own media? Do they have lobbying firms that wield strength in American politics in any state in this union? The answer is no, okay? In, is there a single county in this country where the local right-wing militia, especially a racist one, is, is so hell-bent and so powerful that they are a threat to overthrow the sheriff's department and seize a county out of the, what, 18,000 counties or whatever it is in this country, 13, 15,000 counties? Come on. It's just not happening. It's just not true. And so, um, and by the way, and listen, I'm, I knew a lot more about this in the 1990s than I do about, you know, the current thing. But I think it's pretty obvious here without even really delving too far into it, that the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Boogaloo Boys, and um, who am I forgetting? There's one more major one on the left, the Proud Boys, I say them, um, that these guys are, they're essentially militia guys, but they're separate and distinct and different from actual Nazis and white supremacists. Now, maybe they're, you know, they're, right-wing populace and maybe they say bad words sometimes or whatever but uh certainly in the 90s and i believe that this is the case today the idea behind these groups is that the enemy is power the enemy is the people who control the government uh it's not i mean in the 1990s i knew a lot of these guys and they just didn't talk about blacks and jews they just didn't that wasn't their thing the problem was the new world order and the new world order is coming to get us all. And, and being black was certainly not seen as like any protection. Like the new world order was going to come and favor blacks at the expense of whites in the country. That wasn't part of the narrative. Nobody thought that. And certainly that wasn't like what they were afraid of or something. That wasn't what it was about. And the Rockefellers, of course, are always at the heart of all these conspiracies. But they're Presbyterians, right? And I guess Nelson was a Baptist. I don't know. Uh, John D and his son were, were Presbyterians. They're not Jews. So um, they're white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. They're new money, relatively, well, old to us now, but relatively new money compared to the Mayflower families and that kind of thing. But mm -hmm. they're from the Midwest. They're white, white guys from the Midwest, Protestants from the Midwest. So um, anyway, um, I just think all of that is just so overblown. And, and I think, you know, the, the real, I don't know what the numbers are, but I'm sure they're very small when it comes to groups of avowed white, you know, violent white supremacists who are ready to commit acts of violence against regular innocent people or even powerful people because they're black or Jewish or anything like that. And, you know, it's like, if I say to you, you know, the, the greatest threat to everybody having fun at this skate park are these stupid rollerblader kids who won't get out of the way, right? Okay, that might be true because there are no other threats to fun at the skate park, right? This is the only one I can come up with and it's really not much of one. Hey, Gromit, get out of the way, yeah. right? And the problem is solved. If I wanna say like, oh, this is the crisis we all face and that's why I need a budget increase or whatever, then I can come up with a, a story there. but. What's the relative problem? Maybe that's not the best metaphor, but I really hate rollerbladers like Nazis. You know, they suck. But uh, I don't need, do they even have those anymore? I don't even think they have those anymore. It'd be the scooter kids nowadays, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Damn scooter kids. Anyway, so that's the thing of it. It's a hoax, man. It's a hoax. There, there are white supremacist Nazis in this country, but then again, legalize cocaine and methamphetamine and then watch the prison population plummet and then what reason does anybody need to be a Nazi if it's not to protect themselves from black and or Mexican gangs in the same prison that they're locked in? Mm -hmm. That's the reason why people join black gangs in prison. And that's the reason why people join white gangs in prison. It's because that's how they keep them divided in prison is by race. And then so 
that's your that's your protection force inside the prison. Which isn't that hilarious? That inside an absolute totalitarian police state, a prison, absolute totalitarianism, no one believes that the local security force can provide security. <laughs> everyone knows your mom and your dad and your little sister and everyone knows if you go to prison unless you're really lucky in some weird circumstance you're gonna have to join a gang dude mm -hmm. because the ceos aren't gonna protect you their job is protecting themselves and that's you know just like ron paul used to say well geez if they can't keep drugs out of prison how can they out of prison how can they keep them out of the rest of society even if they lock us all the way down, that still won't work. We have a controlled experiment right here, right? You know, same thing here on just in terms of security services. If you have an absolute totalitarian state in a prison, you still got to join a gang to survive. You still need your friends yeah. because the government won't protect you. Yeah. Well, Scott, if there's anything else that you want to cover really quick, please do. And then. No, nah, just read antiwar.com every day, everybody, and you'll be set. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Absolutely. Thank you, Liam. Good to talk to you. Yep. Talk to you later. It's the weekend. We can let go. It's the full send.